This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. On today's episode, we're going to look at the path from political polarization to the radicalization we're witnessing during Trump's presidency. Hyperpolarization has been the norm in America for over a decade, but today we're going to look at how the original design of our electoral system morphed into polarization and how that division evolved into the radicalization we're witnessing as President Trump fans the flames of division and chaos. To help me break this down today, I have national political strategist and my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder, Steve Schmidt, and veteran strategist and media consultant and Lincoln Project senior advisor, Stuart Stevens. Steve, before we get started and dig in here, I'd love for you to set the stage for us by talking a bit about how the American political system is unique, that is how it's supposed to be working and all the ways that it isn't living up to its original design right now. Well, the American political system is unique in the sense that we are the oldest constitutional republic in the world. And the birth of the country, the idea that there would be a government of the people, by the people, for the people, that the people could decide, that people could vote, that the leaders of the country, the head of state of the country would be selected, not hereditary titles. Um, this was a revolutionary concept in the world. There, there wasn't such a thing as a president before there was the American president. And the Constitution of the United States, as a governing framework, has turned out to be a work of profound genius. And over time, it's been through the framework of the American Constitution that's allowed for the country to more closely evolve to its founding ideas and ideals, which are found in the Declaration of Independence. The idea that we're all created equal, endowed by a creator with inalienable rights, amongst them life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. And so the, the head of state in this country is the president chosen by the, chosen by the people but there's no person, no office that's above the rule of law that's supreme in this country, right? That's the, that's the point of a constitutional republic. Now, for much of the history, uh, our politics have been shaped by political parties, and George Washington warned about them. He saw them rising towards the end of his first term. And the contest between the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists was something that in his farewell address, he said to the country that he warned about the danger of foreign entanglements, but also faction, which was the word of that era for partisanship. 
for tribal parties that would subordinate the national interests for parochial interests. And so we've had a stable two-party system in this country really since the founding of the Republican Party in 1854. And the two American political parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, are respectively the first and the third oldest political parties in the world. And for much of the country's history, the parties have been stabilizing institutions in our country because the parties were strong. And the parties were also diverse. Uh, They were not regionally or ideologically homogenous. So, for example, I grew up in New Jersey, and there was a tremendous tradition of republicanism, all of whom happened to be pretty liberal. Stewart grew up in Mississippi. Mississippi was a democratic state. In fact, and I think I'm correct about this, is that there were only three elected federal office holders in the Republican Party from south of the Mason-Dixon line on the day that Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. So there were a lot of conservatives in the Democratic Party in states like Mississippi and Alabama and Texas. And so we've seen a number of things that have happened over recent years that you can all lay blame for this. Well, One of the first is the admission of TV cameras into the House chamber. There was an opportunistic young congressman named Newt Gingrich who utilized that feature, C-SPAN, to deliver polemic speeches on the floor and became famous for issuing guidance and language, talking about his political opponents as enemies, as degenerates, and he found an audience for it. Second thing is a campaign finance regime that has, over the last 40 years, looked at money in American politics and said that of all of the categories of money, the most pernicious type of money is the money that flows to a candidate or a political party, that those are the most corrupting dollars in the process. And and in fact, as money has flown away from the parties, it has not diminished. The amount of money being spent in American politics has never been higher. It just simply is spent in outside groups. And a lot of those outside groups enforce single-issue discipline. Now, a political party has to, by virtue of its ambition to be a national organization, has to accommodate a diversity of views or it's going to be a faction. It's going to be a minority. So political parties have always been about building broad bases. But as the parties have weakened, the outside groups have grown And politicians are terrified about being deviant on any issue that strains at the financial incentives around the maintenance of an orthodoxy of position on any one 
of a number of different subjects. And that matters because of now the total brokenness of the redistricting and gerrymandering processes, which decides how we draw congressional lines. And in a democracy, you want the voters to pick the politicians. We live in a country where, in most instances, the politicians pick their voters. And so we have very few competitive elections. And the danger to politicians in losing their seats comes through a primary process where the money will come from an ideological outside group because there's been some type of apostasy on some issue. Remember, Ronald Reagan was the one who said that someone who agrees with me 80% in politics is not my political opponent, someone who agrees with me 80% of the time. So all of these combinations of factors combine together to put us in this moment of profound governing dysfunction. And I haven't mentioned yet the rise of right-wing media, Fox News, and a vast and sophisticated misinformation echo chamber from Facebook and all the other social media outlets as well. Well, all of this combined is putting tremendous downward pressure on the structures of how the system is supposed to work. And it's broken it over the last 30 to 35 years. And, and the evidence of that is this simple and astonishing fact. On issue after issue in this country, whether it's on immigration reform, whether it's on taxation, whether it's on spending, whether it's on criminal justice reform, whether it's on gun control, the overwhelming majority of the country, and by overwhelming majority, I'm talking about 80% or so, support common sense solutions, both Republicans, Democrats, and independents. But they cannot move that legislation through the Congress for all of the reasons I said. And so you have a situation where 90% of the country, after a mass shooting, should say that, well, we think this is common sense. We want to do this. Impossible to do. Right. So the broad middle of the country that looks at Im immigration and says, we got to fix the issue, right? And it basically has a formula that says, if you're not a lawbreaker and you work honestly and you're here and you've been here, you can stay. You pay a fine, you can get in the back of the line behind the last person in line for a green card through a regular order process. And that's where the country is to be able to be able to work this out. But But you cannot get these things done because of all those reasons that I talked about. And so polarization has become elemental to an election strategy where the broad middle has been completely disenfranchised. And the polarization has started to yield to a radicalization of the most intense members of both parties, but most acutely, 
in the Republican Party, where it's most toxic and most dangerous and overwhelmingly so right now. And we're going to dig into that. So is it fair to summarize as a starting point to begin with, at least right now, we have a system that is no longer responsive to the inputs of its primary stakeholders, its constituents? Exactly right. Okay. Stuart, maybe you can comment on how we got to the point where it's not about the merits of the ideas of how to govern, but about who can most effectively weaponize the intensity of emotion on the opposite side purely to win. And I think this gets at the radicalization point that Steve brought us to. Yeah, you know, I think it's we have to be careful here that not to sort of both sides this. Right. Um, because I think... Uh, yes, both parties are, are, are guilty of this, and I spent 30 years pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, so I, you know, I got my bases covered there. But I, I think that uh, the Republican Party uh, is much more guilty of this, and why? Well, the fundamental reason, I think, is the Republican Party is much more homogeneous. So in the Democratic Party, I mean, I would argue today when we talk about three parties – why isn't there a third party in America? That there sort of is a third party, that there's really two parties inside the Democratic Party. So, um, you know, example I use, and, and I think it has shown the out uh, the tremendous power that uh, we've had with like the tax pledge and Grover Norquist. It, it would be reasonable to say that if you take a 35-year-old Republican school teacher, Probably how they feel about taxes is going to be the same as a 65-year-old hedge fund manager. Why is that? Well, probably both are going to be white. And probably both are going to believe that paying less taxes is good. So you take the Democratic Party, 35-year-old school teacher, odds are less great that that person will be white. Um, and they'll probably have a different view than a 65-year-old hedge fund. Now, that makes running a party difficult. It makes it contradictory. It makes it putting together coalitions. It makes these fights that you have. But ultimately, there's a strength in it. Um, and uh, issues like the NRA uh, and, and Grover Norquist, they have given an outside uh, power uh, disproportionate to uh, the way that uh, voters view these issues. Um, and they've become toxic. Um, I mean, let's don't forget that uh, pr President uh, Bush, 41, uh, after he was president, uh, wrote a long, blistering letter to the NRA resigning his lifetime membership um, after uh, they referred to um, federal authorities uh, as jackbooted thugs. I, I think that... Uh, the Republican Party has been shaped by this uh, and limited in its growth by this much more um, than the Democratic Party. So maybe you can break down for listeners what we mean when we say an issue set in political campaigns, because I think this gets to how issues have begun to matter less in terms of the ideas for how to govern and and more about how you can manipulate popular opinion based on a based on a set of issues and the intensity around those issues. Yes, I mean, and, and political consultants are at fault here. Mm -hmm. You know, I've said before, I probably represent the worst of the American political system because I've just focused on winning campaigns. But we sort of have a different role, and uh, than those that we work for and once elected. 
I think the, the, the essence of this goes to what is governing? Governing is all about compromise. I mean, it goes to what Steve was saying with Ronald Reagan's quote about 80%. And we're at a point now uh, where there are purity tests, now purity tests on both sides, but the Republican Party purity test is is much smaller and more defined. Um, what is extraordinary about this is you have someone like Donald Trump who comes along. Um, and by every standard, Donald Trump is basically against what the Republican Party said it was for for decades. Mm-hmm. Character counts, personal responsibility, strong on Russia, uh, strongly pro-legal immigration. Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty, signed a bill that made everybody in the country before 1983 legal. Um, free trade. Uh, Trump's against all of those things, and yet Republicans support him. Why? Well, a lot of reasons. Um, and, and I think race has a lot to do with this. Mm-hmm. But it, it, the purpose of the Republican Party now exists to defeat Democrats. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really doesn't go beyond that. And the sort of epitome of that, sort of two examples of that would be the party platform. I mean, I never thought we'd put this in writing. I mean, I, I wrote a book about the Republican Party. It was pretty bleak. I finished it a year ago. It turns out I was overly optimistic. I mean, the, the idea that they're going to put in writing that the only thing the party believes in is what Donald Trump believes in. I mean, that's extraordinary. And the other thing is here we have a pro, you know, this, this moment where a president of the United States, through his ineptitude, stupidity, incompetence, vanity, um, lack of, uh, of ability to focus, is killing tens of thousands of Americans. Mm. And uh, I mean, today we're recording this. We have the Woodward tapes that come out where he says that he de- uh, deliberately uh, uh, hid from the public the seriousness of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, uh, what more of a test can you get than the fact that he's killing us and Republicans are still supporting him? I mean, if we had the same fatality rate for COVID-19 as Germany, 140,000 or so more Americans would still be alive. I mean, that's just an extraordinary number. Um, so it's, it's sort of the ultimate test. Okay, even if he's going to kill me, will I still support him? And this, and I, I was going to say this, you know, to some degree, run the boundary line between a political question and a, and a sociological question. It's deeply rooted to the character of the country and into the concept of Americanism. And if there was if there was one thing that that's rooted to Americanism, it's the idea of individualism, that Americans aren't immune from being cult members. But we have as a nation been immune to having a cult of personality disfigure one of our two political parties and our politics. But that's what we have. You know, today in the country, we have a we have a multi billion dollar anger industry that drives American politics appealing to the hardest core, right? The most intense core of a thirty percent at the most base of the country that has surrendered fundamentally its agency to a leader who is illiberal and thus un-American, who has autocratic and authoritarian-ish tendencies. And this was validated in the platform, as Stewart pointed out, of the party 
that essentially said, want to be a Republican, all you have to believe in is Trump. And all you have to do is be, is be obedient to the leader. Right? And the, the, the American response to that, frankly, is go fuck yourself. No, thank you. Um, it, it's not in the national character to see that. And so you now look at something that's come out today is that, and it's astonishing, right? And this goes to this boundary between our polarization and the radicalization, right? That's, 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 that's metastasized from it and, and has overwhelmed the whole of the Republican party where there's a crisis of cowardice in the leadership of the senators with the exception of Mitt Romney who refused to speak out against any of this. Um, we have a crisis of, of decency where people who are pillars of the conservative media and intellectual establishment look another way at all of this. But, but, but here's what we know now. We, we have a president of the United States who admitted on tape to premeditatedly and deliberately lying to the country over and over and over and over again about COVID, calling it a hoax, telling people to take hydroxychloroquine, telling people to ingest Lysol, telling people that it would be gone, it would be gone by Easter, it would be gone by the beginning of July. And so what, what do we have? We got a guy who lied and committed the greatest act of negligence and malfeasance in the history of the country, barred none, that has killed almost 200,000 people. Before it's done, we'll kill more Americans than were killed in the whole of the Second World War. Has devastated the economy, has fundamentally disrupted the education of every kid in the country, has ended the American way of life from being able to be together as families, being able to travel, being able to get together for a tailgate at a college football game. It's all gone. Because of the mismanagement, the incompetence of the clown who sits behind the Resolute desk in the Oval Office, who has precipitated a nosedive of a decline in the most powerful, most advanced economy and science and math country on the face of the earth. And 30 percent of the country, no matter what, are with them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Do you think this gets to negative partisanship? Well, look, look, I, I think that the failure here is of the Republican Party as an entity. I mean, our parties have to form a sort of circuit breaker switch. And Republicans never pulled the circuit breaker on Trump. And it wasn't because uh, they didn't know who Trump was. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is the least surprising human on the planet. He's the most predictable person on the planet. He's told us for decades who he is. Um, there's no sleight of hand here. There's no even an attempt to have a sleight of hand. Um, and I think that Republicans, there's sort of two views of this, sure. one more benign, one less benign. The more benign is that they actually believed that if Democrats came into power, if Hillary Clinton, this kind of whole Flight 93 mm-hmm. piece that came in, that this would threaten democracy, that they had to do this. Um, now, I think to believe that is very un-American because the essence of democracy, as I was told once by a UN advisor when I was working in elections in the Congo, he said, you know, man, the thing about this democracy thing is somebody's got to be willing to lose. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when you take the attitude that you'll support someone who's completely unfit to be president because you're unwilling to lose, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's an anti-democratic, low-D uh, democratic uh, instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the less benign view, which is really where I come down, is it's just cowardice. It's not interesting. It's not novel. Uh, it's, it's, there's nothing about it that we haven't seen before, but that these are really a group of, of not particularly, uh, bold, brave people. And there's something to be said about our system that it has self-selected this group of people Mm -hmm. that our best aren't willing to run for office. Um, but that they've ended up here and, uh, Cowardice is contagious mm-hmm. and cowards like to be surrounded by cowards because then they feel normal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what mobs are. Right. Um, and so the great betrayal here, I think, is among these uh, Republican politicians who are heir to the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the courage to stand up to Donald Trump. And, and, and courage is, is not standing up to Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot. Mm-hmm. And that's their legacy. Mm-hmm. And they've just squandered that. And I think it's disgraceful. Uh, I hope they'll look back on it with shame. But I know that history will record it as shameful. So, Steve, you mentioned blind loyalty a little bit earlier. I want to talk a little bit more about that as the next stage between sort of from polarization to, to radicalization. Blind loyalty is is sort of a stop along the way. Mm-hmm. So. I wonder if you can dig into that a little bit more, talk about how diversity of thought has essentially evaporated within the Republican Party since 2008. And maybe the last really prominent stand of that was John McCain on healthcare repeal. What I think is true historically is that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are two of the most important institutions, not just in our country's history, but in world history for the advancement of human dignity and freedom. And each party, almost providentially, has produced the right leader 
in the nation's moments of crises, whether it was Lincoln in the 19th century, the Democrats with FDR in the 20th century, and I'm somebody who has a right of center disposition, but believes FDR saved both democracy and capitalism before he saved the world um, from slavery. What, what, the, what the Republican Party was, was the more conservative, small c, of the country's two, small l, liberal democratic parties that argued sometimes vituperatively and vociferously between the 40-yard lines over sometimes not such big disagreements. And that's the way it's supposed to work. When you win an election, you advance your agenda, but you also were cognizant that 46, 45, 47% of the country wasn't with you, that you have some understanding of the concept of restraint. And if you lose, you understand you get the best deal that you can. But the purpose of both political parties is to advance through advocacy for ideas, ideals, and positions, a more perfect union. But both parties, as a, as a broad proposition, despite the George Wallaces and the segregationists and those noxious elements of our history, the modern versions of these parties have been utterly fidelitous to the idea of democracy, to the idea of the U.S.-led liberal global order. And the Republican Party in the Trump era that exists today is, by any definition, as we said at the beginning, a cult of personality. Right? To be a Republican now isn't about a belief in the role, an appropriate role of government, what the size of government should be. It's not about a philosophy on international relations or security or any other issue. It's about obedience to Donald Trump. And we saw at that Republican convention three things. We saw a level of breathtaking lying from the moment the gavel came down to the moment the convention closed that's unprecedented in the history of the country. We saw brazen lawlessness, illegal act after illegal act on the plain meaning of the law about the use of federal properties and taxpayer dollars for political purposes and just didn't care. The president reveled in the idea, according to reports, that no one could hold them accountable. And the last thing you saw was the co-option of the ecumenical symbols of the republic that belong to all of us. Trump's perverting them into partisan totems and symbols of his authority. So when you do those three things, what, what are you declaring? Well, I think that what I saw was someone declaring and putting forward into an American election this proposition. That I am the truth, I am the law, and I am the state. 
And when not a single legislator from the co-equal branch of government stands up to oppose any of this, not to mention the constant usurpation of the checks and balances, the assaults on the rule of law, on institutions, what you have for the first time fully in the country, an illiberal party that looks much more like some European far-right party that Maureen Le Pen would be a member of, that you might see in Viktor Orban's Hungary, something that's alien to the American tradition. And so in our two-party system, we only have one party now that has faithfulness to democracy, and that's the Democratic Party. And so we're in this moment in time where 60 days before an election, there's an issue on the table. And it's about the confrontation that must happen between the Democratic Party and the ideas and the ideals of the country and Trumpism, which is, by definition, an un-American ideology. The times in our country's history where there has been an outbreak of extremism and there has been terrible things that have been done in the name of that extremism, the massacres that took place in the 1870s, the terrible race murders in Tulsa, this stuff has littered our history. But, but never has there been an extreme movement like this one that has seized power in the country and now has put, put forward the proposition that any outcome in an election that affirms any result other than remaining in power is illegitimate, which is an assault to the foundational concepts of the United States of America. And that's what this election's about. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. So is this, is this what you mean? Is this what we mean when we say radicalize? Because I want to end with this, and I know we've only got a few more minutes left, but I'd like to hear from both of you exactly what we mean when we say that Trump is radicalizing. Well, if America. you if you believe that you're defending uh, you're, between you and the Western civilization, you're the you're the Spartan in the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, it it gives you permission to do whatever is necessary to. Uh, uh, make sure that the opposing forces lose. Um, not this idea we're two good people that we disagree 
and the country's going to choose a path. It's, uh, the, this is, uh, and, and they look at it and speak of it often as ordained by God that Trump is an angel, an avenging angel who has come to save us. Somebody had to do it. And that gives you permission uh, to do whatever is necessary. Um, and once you're in that mindset, it's not a question of uh, right or wrong because you're by, you've been pardoned. Mm-hmm. You, you're in the right. And if that means that uh, you're going to go shoot somebody, you go do that. Now, who does this affect this, the most? The weakest in our society, the most impressionable, the ones who are on the fringes of society, um, uh, like this uh, 18-year-old kid who uh, goes and, and gets a, a semi-automatic weapon and shoots two people at a protest. Um, but it's a short walk when they see Donald Trump uh, elevating, putting on a national stage, glorifying uh, two millionaire lawyers from St. Louis who are only on stage because they threaten black people, pe- peaceful demonstrators with guns. So, you know, what just kills me is, Republicans said for decades that culture was the most important element in the country, more important than any one issue. It was the soul of the nation. And guess what? We were right. Mm. And now we've just thrown this all out. And this is a culture of hate um, that has been embraced by a national party. And as Steve says, I I don't think we've seen this. We've had elements of of, of politics of hate for a long time. I mean, in the 30s, we had a huge element of this, but it wasn't adopted by a major party. And I, I think the history will tell us that once a party does embrace this hate, it's very difficult and a long road to, uh, to, to undo that. But the first step is to defeat Donald Trump. It's, it's necessary, but inadequate. Hmm. Steve. We have an enormous problem in this country when seemingly out of the blue. And I say this to someone who reads a lot, a lot of newspapers, a lot of magazines, a lot of books and watches a lot of news. I never heard of a bugaloo boy until they showed up armed to the teeth in tactical gear with AR-15s and M4s, body armor and Hawaiian shirts, fetishizing about a second civil war at the Michigan State Capitol. And since when is that okay in this country? An armed assault demanding a meeting to discuss a political grievance with the elected head of the state, armed to the teeth. This isn't a banana republic. And so if you look at Trump's rhetoric, the young man that Stewart is speaking about, murderer now, 17 years old, he was radicalized by Trumpism. And we shouldn't shy away from talking about this. He sat there in the front row. He heard everything. We can get the quotes out from Fox News and Judge Jeanine and Laura Ingram and the rest of them. You can listen to the insanity of Infowars. And of course, that was one of the first people that Trump called Alex Jones after he was elected president. We can watch the conspiracies play out and all the dark recesses of the web. We should take the white nationalists and racists and Klansmen and neo-Nazis at their word 
when they feel that Trump has validated them and mainstream them and they exult in his presidency. We, we should understand the power in the American presidency when German far right parties are marching with banners of their new Fuhrer, their leader, Donald Trump. We, we should understand all of this because we've devoted a lot of money and time in trying to understand how is it that a young man in the Middle East has no higher ambition in life than to strap on a suicide vest and go kill people in a market or to drive a car bomb into U.S. troops. No different. And so let's look at the cause and effect that plainly exists. You have a you have a couple named the McCloskeys in St. Louis who were appropriately arrested and charged who come out onto their lawn pointing weapons at peacefully marching protesters, almost all of them minorities. And they, they have no accomplishment, no, no reason to be at the Republican convention except for that achievement. Period. Full stop. And and go back and listen to what they said. Listen to the apocalypse they described. Listen to the dystopia that they are heralding is about to descend on suburban America. Listen to the words of Matt Gates at that convention. Listen to the messianic ravings of Kimberly Guilfoyle. Listen to it. Listen to what Trump said. And so what happened? 17-year-old took his AR-15, got in his car, and drove from Illinois to Kenosha, Wisconsin, a town where the country got to witness an unarmed black man get shot in the back seven times And here you go with a 17-year-old who's walking in this chaotic situation past the cops, no problem apparently, strapped with his AR-15, looking for trouble, and he found that he killed two people. In the political culture that Donald Trump has stoked, that he's inflamed, is directly responsible. And it's no accident, and it's no coincidence that the violence we've seen at these rallies, the menace that has always teamed on the edge of it is getting hotter and more dangerous and spreading and is likely to spread even more between now and the election. And this isn't the type of country I would would submit that we should aspire to be in the third decade of the 21st century. But make no mistake, There is an extremist in this race. There is a radical element in this race. And it's Trumpism. It's Donald Trump. It's his family. It's his collaborators and enablers in the White House. It's his collaborators and enablers in the Congress. And it's it's his collaborators and enablers in the moneyed set who believe that this is the pathway to special privilege at the expense of the many, which explains how Kanye West gets many millions of dollars of COVID money when 
many, many small businesses were told that the well was dry and that their dreams were dead. Well, look, I, I just say what all this means is that the next days between now and the election, I, I think, are some of the most dangerous and important in the history of the country. And that's really what Steve is saying. Um, and I think that for people out there listening, uh, what we do between now and November 3rd, I think there's a very good chance that you know, in your last days, you'll look back on this and be the most proud of what you did. The History, we, we don't get to choose history, uh, but history can choose us. And, and we have been chosen in this moment as a nation to decide what kind of country we are. And uh, it is really going to define who we are and each of us and collectively. We know who Donald Trump is. He's not going to change. The, the question is, who are we? And I, I remain optimistic uh, that, that, that our vision of a better angels uh, will come through. But it's a fight. I mean, these people will fight uh, to hold on to power. They'll fight because they believe that uh, the alternative is uh, the Antichrist. And, and it's a struggle, but it's a fight worth having. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.